0: Before we get started, we just want to flag that this episode does contain the discussion of controlled substances. For that reason, we strongly advise anyone listening to make sure you're acquainted with the laws of your country in relation to these substances, and act accordingly. The future is a work in progress. And if we want to create the kind of future that society and the planet deserve, Why not start today with ourselves? I'm Nati Kassambala and this is Super Self. In this series, I'll be taking you on a feel-good journey, discovering the kinds of things that we can do to help us become the most super version of ourselves, both inside and out. From how we move and nourish ourselves to how we find our purpose and connect with something bigger, I'll be speaking to people from the worlds of food, fitness, spirituality and beyond about their amazing work and stories so far, as well as the best ways we can all feel good well into the future. In this episode, we're looking at the role spirituality can play in our well-being. We're going to do this by diving into the intriguing world of psychedelics, most notably, mushrooms. And who better to help us do this than Darren Springer, aka Darren LeBaron.
1: I'm a mycologist, which is a mushroom cultivator, and I deal with the world of fungi. I'm also an independent psychedelic researcher, and I like to teach and share about the indigenous usages and practices of psychoactive plants and healing herbs.
0: Darren has taught organic food growing and mushroom cultivation to people of all ages, everywhere from Somerset House to a school in North London. He was kind enough to let us tag along to one of his classes in Shoreditch earlier this year.
1: So today we are in Shoreditch, co-working space known as Coal balance and we're here to, um, delivering Mushroom Shop, which is a mushroom cultivation workshop for beginners.
0: One of his favourite mushrooms to get people growing is the oyster mushroom.
1: It's a very easy mushroom to grow. It gets people in the door growing and helps build up their confidence and self-esteem as well. Any and everybody can grow mushrooms. It's really easy. All of these things are readily available either in the home already or you can just get them from your local stores, you know, everything. great. Mushrooms are made from mycelium. If you can grow mycelium, you can grow mushrooms, you know, that's the principle. So you can grow mycelium on cardboard. Sometimes when I do this stuff and people like say, oh, so is it just water from the tap that you use when you do your things? I'm like, yeah, water out of the tap. The brown cardboard, it turns white. That's the colour of mycelium. It takes over, it starts to eat the cardboard. It's like growing an alien, really. So once you know how to grow mycelium, it's kinda of like you've won, because you can grow mycelium. That's what mushrooms grow from. <laughs> when they deliver, you're like, oh great, they come through for me. And then sometimes they don't come through for you, and that basically during that process they can get contamination.
0: Whatever the mushroom you're growing, Darren encourages all his students to not enter into the experience lightly.
1: When I do my cultivation workshops in general, like for our oyster mushrooms, I let people know, you just think you're growing an oyster mushroom to eat on a Friday night or whenever you want to eat, but there's a lot more to it than that. And you're building this relationship and you should take the time out to explore that and hear what other people have got to say. I tell people not to break the law. <laughs> you know, I really encourage people to be responsible. So getting it from where it's legal or growing it in a place where it's legal is the best way forward, as well as educating yourself about what you're actually getting into. This is meant to be a hands-on workshop. That's how people really learn. So I want you to absorb your own...
0: We'll move on to mine and Darren's conversation now, which took place while he was travelling in Mexico. And like all good conversations, we decided to start small. So in this series, we want to explore the idea of spirituality and what it means for our well-being. And the word spirituality obviously means different things to different people. So I wanted to start by asking, what does the word spirituality mean to you?
1: wow okay we're starting off there (laughs) it's funny I was having a conversation with my daughter about this the other day just about religion and spirituality what comes first and we came to the understanding that religion is kind of like organised spirituality but when people say they're spiritual they can be spiritual have a relationship with their gods you know their creative force or their ancestors whatever they particularly deal with and they don't need to necessarily follow an organised religion to be able to do that so with that said My understanding is that we have a spirit, we have this essence, and each individual's got a right to define what inspires or, you know, makes their spirit inspired that's what inspires it all to do this spiritual thing inside of you so for me my spirituality is anything that keeps you know makes me feel good and keeps me on a certain level where I can conduct myself to the best that I can and deal with people in the ways that I best can that same fit for me I'm not a Hindu but I have elements of yoga in my daily practices because it supports me with my well-being how Darren needs to feel when I want to wake up and I've decided well worked out that everybody's going to have a personal relationship they're going to do it different and like to really appreciate and respect that there's different approaches to you know your spirituality and how you'll go about developing your well-being
0: that's super interesting i think especially that kind of argument about spirituality as a departure from religion perhaps people are returning back towards that or kind of distilling that down again into something that feels bigger or more fluid as well how long have you been working with mushrooms
1: well working with mushrooms i would say pretty much since i was really young as far as my relationship with them and pizza and teenage mutant ninja turtles that's where i really (laughs) built a relationship for mushrooms and it was a whole theme around pizza so i liked eating pizza while i was watching it and i'd always like mushroom toppings on my pizza i used to like mushroom sweet corn and pineapple basically and people like you've got the toppings that that are not meant to go yeah exactly (laughs) so that's as far back as i can remember really appreciating mushrooms but in my adulthood (laughs) it led me to getting involved in horticulture it was a personal journey that i was on just i had a garden space for the first time you know i was attempting to live healthy and grow my own food and stuff like that it was just a personal quest i was on and i went back to study horticulture and within that three years that i studied you know and um i was learning you know organic food growing permaculture and just different ways of sustainable living and sustainable growing and in that there was a reoccurrence of mushrooms coming up. And I just thought it was really weird because one, I went to learn about organic food growing and we were studying soil science and we were studying composting, which were two favourite subjects of mine. I come to find out by the end of it all, the magic behind soil and the magic behind composting was this fungi. You know, and we know a lot about plants, you know, but to know that the power and the thing that's controlling the plants is this thing we call mushrooms or fungi. I was like, yeah, I want to, I want personally want to know more about it and get my head around Mm. it. And the more I learned, the more I discovered as a teacher, I decided to spend more time and teaching and sharing about some of my findings.
0: What was one of the first things that you found when you were growing mushrooms that became your favorite part of it? What's your favorite part of the process of a mushroom?
1: Like it was composting, that's what really done it for me. It was just, you know, it's something that we're all kind of familiar with whether we practice it or not, but you know, just recycling, you know, just people in general recycling, mm. composting, and just knowing that any and everything that's ever been alive needs to be recycled we are dependent upon fungi to come in and break down anything and everything that's ever been alive to regenerate and create new soil, including you and I one day. So to see that happen in a compost heap, going back to spirituality and, you know, religion, I kind of looked at the compost heap as a, a symbol for life, death and resurrection. I know it might sound deep to some people are way off, but it really was that because I discovered that through this system of, you know, bringing these microorganisms together, attracting them to decomposing material, you know, something that was alive that is in the process of dying, that they find it, utilise it, but they transform it into new life. It's how we get new soil. Like, nothing would grow without this process taking place, you know, naturally. And it, there's sayings like... Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We come from the soil. We go back to the soil. And for me, that was the magic behind the compost. Was this white little thing called mycelium that people walk past, step on, kick, you know, and don't even necessarily consider it. But this is like the be all and end all of planet Earth. Watch, you know, what keeps it going. So that was the thing that really, you know, yeah, kickstarted my interest in what this organism was, because it you 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 rarely see it. You know, it's hidden, it's always behind the scenes, it's underneath stuff, it's behind stuff. It's like, it doesn't even want to be seen, but it has this amazing role and function that it plays in creating plants. And that blew my mind, for real.
0: Again, really interesting, and I think that kind of balance between growth stemming from decomposition. I think we have all these kind of negative connotations around things breaking down or things getting old or like, yeah, just things decomposing. But actually, that is the very same energy that then translates right back into reproducing and new life. And something else that you talked about that I just am so excited to hear what you, how you explain it as a philosophy enthusiast. You talked about us being mushrooms, having a human experience. And I'm really interested to hear exactly what you mean by that. Exactly
1: that. You are a mushroom <laughs> having a human experience. What do you mean? You don't know? Um,
0: <laughs> it explains itself, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like as far as, you know, a philosophy, but I, I try to bring in, you know, um, mythology. But within the mythologies, as well as what science is suggesting now, is that mushrooms, the form that they arrived or starting, which is spores, are not from Earth. The original spores are not from Earth. Like many other things, we can get into that if we want to go, go there. But the spores itself from mushrooms arrived on mm-hmm. planet Earth by way of spaceships and crafts, what we would call UFOs at the time. But these spaceships, crafts, UFOs are quite simply asteroids and meteorites that have traveled and traversed the universe, come into our solar system, made their way very close to Earth, and at some point in time, many millions of years ago, they crash bang walloped into planet Earth. This is a process that's happened a few times with Earth, you know, as far as it having to start and replenish itself. You know, whether it's volcanics, floods, meteorite impacts, you know, we've had dinosaurs on the planet and stuff, but what you'll find out is that every time mushrooms clean up and start the process over again. So, in this current cycle that we've had, these spores that arrived on these meteorites, some of them made them into the, the spores that were the passengers on these spaceships, made their way. Some of them crash bang walloped into the oceans, into the seas, and there, there was life there, and they had an abundance of, you know, infinite blissness to explore. The first living organism to ever make it out of the water onto land was a fungi, was mushrooms. So when they've made it out onto the land, they're like, yo, there's not as much activity going on up here as there is down there in the oceans, you know? And there's not as much food, not as much abundance. What are we going to need to do? Well, they're going to need to create the abundance for themselves because they are survivors. Like I said, it's just like if we turned up somewhere and there was no food in the fridge, like are we just going to sit there and say, well, there's no food in the fridge? You know. So what they decided to do was make use of what was already there and all that was there was the bedrock. So that's what they decided to eat and when mushrooms eat they do what we do when we eat they release number ones and number twos and when mushrooms eat rock they release and process it into soil so that's how we got soil the first layers of soil were created by mushrooms by breaking down the bedrock along with other forms of you know bacteria and other microorganisms and that created the first layers of soil that allowed the first primitive plants to grow, like lichen and moss. 500 million years later, you've got plants and grass, and you know, many millions of years later, you've got human beings coming as the, an extension of this project of things that have come out of the soil ever since. And human beings are one of them. But if you understand that the, the connection, the motherboard, the interface, the wifi connections, the personal hotspots and all of that type of stuff exist in nature. And nature's been doing it for millions of years and just been utilizing, you know, I say that all of that to say, when I first started this journey in food growing, one of the uncommon saying that I'd heard at the time, but I'm trying to make it more popular amongst my circles. It's like an old wives saying, as they would say, something like that. But it's, um, do we use the plants or do the plants use us? It just goes to say along the lines that plants have evolved to basically manipulate us and things around them. They're not as dull, so and. as we would like to think. Orange trees haven't always produced oranges that look the way that they do and taste the way they do. Once they realised that they attracted us and other animals, they said, okay, we got to make ourselves look even more attractive because if you eat us, you help us to travel. You know, you get us from point A to point B, because if you eat an orange, you're meant to eat it, you swallow the seeds, and then a few minutes, or (laughs) maybe not minutes, but hours later, for some people, days later, you're meant to pass it out. And then those seeds get to travel and get from, you know, from place to place. So it's just understanding these processes and the connections with them. But if you follow it all the way back, you've got this motherboard, this network that lives in the soil known as mycelium, that's allowing all the plants, all the microorganisms to understand and communicate amongst themselves.
0: That's so crazy. And then I guess moving on to your own relationship, I guess, with nature more generally as well. You had a saying that the forest will make you happy. And I just wondered if you could explain what that expression means to you.
1: As a child, I grew up in an urban environment, concrete jungle. Yeah, pretty much. Where Our local little park had some swings, you know, slides and roundabouts. And when you get to a certain age, it's not that interesting or as engaging as it is when you were smaller. So my experience of the forest as a preteen, you know, from 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, hanging with my friends in my local area. We had Epping Forest as our local forest. I remember that always being an adventure for us. You know, it was like a 15, 20 minute bike ride from where we live. But it's like, we're going to the forest. Those were my earliest experiences of the forest and it made me happy. And I'm saying that to fast track many years later. um, It was my time that I spent doing organically. That's where i done my studying of horticulture and actually developed my career. I started teaching there as well. And it was right at the edge of Epping Forest, the same forest that I grew up as a kid hanging in. And I'm like, I'm back there in my adulthood. And what I got from it was one, on a day to day basis to get to our site when I came out of the train station. You would have to walk through the forest So the daily journey through the forest Became a rites of passage for me It was a day to day thing that I'd experienced And to see the change and the shift in the forest I was blown by it all Just, This is me and my adulthood And then to fast track a little bit further down the line I started teaching young people at our site And I was bringing them down from another part of East London to where our site is, which is like an hour journey. They would need to jump on the train. You know, I'll bring them out of their concrete jungle and bring them to our forest site. Because these were so-called bad boys, you know, the bad boys and bad girls. They're from pupil referral units. They've been kicked out of school, just come out of prison and stuff like that. So most people have just given up on them for the most part. So my thing was like, well, let's not try and teach them where they're at. Let's bring them out of that place and space. And that place and space was to our site at organically, which is at the edge of the forest, just like me when they get out the train station, they would need to take that journey through the forest. And that was the first time I saw the transformation for real, for real, for real, with young people. I saw the teddy bears come out of them, I saw the softness come out of them. Once they got off the train at the the destination, when they realised that they could put their guards down, they was no longer in the hood, they was no longer in a place where they needed to protect and defend themselves, they could relax. And then we made those first steps into the forest. The first thing that I noticed was their fear. Their fear of the unknown. Oh, Oh, we're in the forest. Oh, sir, what's this? Is this poisonous? Does this sting? Does this bite? Oh, there's a worm. Oh, there's a bird. There's a butterfly. I just saw them go from not wanting to do anything to being really excited by it all being young children, being curious and that type of vibe and I saw that concrete hardness in them just dissolve and it reminded me of myself and that's why we made an effort to do more and more of that type of work. I utilise the forest to go and do my practice, my training when I've got you know problems, challenges in life. I know that the forest plays a big part in being able to take that away from me, process it and turn it into new life. So I take my problems to the forest, that's what I do. And you know, uh, to be straight last a year and a half ago, I lost a teacher of mine, my mushroom teacher, and then my father passed nine days after that as well. And as much as there was loads of human beings that were very supportive and got me through that, nothing compared to what the forest had to offer. Me just on a daily basis, taking that pilgrimage, jumping on my bike, rolling down to the forest, you know, and just breathing in the fresh air, seeing the new, as well as old life, seeing that cycle, as I mentioned earlier, like on the compost heap, and just me accepting and processing this cycle that both my teacher and my father are going through. So that's what the forest does for me and why it makes me happy. I know that was long, but that was just to let you know the my relationship with it.
0: Moving on to something that you touched on earlier in terms of psychedelics. Uh, you mentioned it is something that felt for so long off limits to you. But then obviously venturing into the world of mushrooms and growing, it's almost like a slightly inevitable path uh, for you to end up, I guess, not if not exploring yourself personally, knowing a lot about. And so I was wondering, like, how did you eventually start to step into that path and how do you feel like it changed or didn't change your life from that point?
1: You know, I always say it's a weird one, but it's like a lifelong journey. It's kind of like that got me there, but I was just definitely say like the catalyst at that time was my teacher, who I mentioned. Well, I didn't mention his name. In fact, his name's Kalindi E. And I was kind of learning about the soil, learning about the importance of mushrooms, and then I'm exploring. You know, all type because you've got to be careful. That's what most people say when you talk about mushrooms. You've got to be careful because there's poisonous and deadly mushrooms. So if you're out there in that world, you're going to need to know what they are. But as the more you I found out about them, I'm like, well, actually, so the people to say be careful mushrooms are deadly and poisonous. They actually are not mycologists. They're not people in that in that world. People are in that world, you can have mature conversations with them about it. And that's what I decided to do. And then during the process where I was learning about them from the horticultural perspective I felt it would be unbalanced of me, improper to talk about, represent mushrooms without seeing what this thing was all about. So during that time, I was also introduced to Kalindi EE and his work. I knew him in my community um, for teaching about martial arts, the African origins of martial arts and fighting sciences. In one of his presentations, he was talking about martial arts and magic mushrooms. And I was like, huh? how's, how's he, how does he work this one out? And mm. cut a long story short, I watched the presentation and life hasn't been the same ever since. And that's what was really like to see somebody here, somebody that looks like me, sounds like me, speaks my language, um, you know, not just because he spoke English, but the way he delivered it and presented it, it just resonated and I knew that I was hearing truth, you know, of my truth that I needed to hear. So that was like a big inspiration and which led me to say, I'm actually going to try this experience out. I can't keep saying it's wrong or it's bad if I've never tried it before. So I tried it and <laughs> life hasn't been the same since I would love you know for others to experience that in that way you know and I know that they can't have it in the same way I experience but what I can say is definitely um supported many people um to transform their lives and I just encourage people to be responsible know the law of your land and all those kind of things there and just be you know fo- follow of the, the correct protocols and exploring that
0: and do you think it's fair to say that there's been a renaissance in terms of interest with psychedelics in, in the West, at least?
1: Yeah, definitely. You hit it on the head in the West, at least. I always highlight that another th- way they express it. It's called the third wave. It's like it's, this is the third opportunity that the West has got the knowledge and wisdom at their disposal of psychedelics. And like, what are they going to do with it? I would have been said the same thing until I started doing my own research in Googles, man. And that was inspired by Kalindi E. Cause like I said, he was the first I ever heard talking about psychedelics from an African perspective, you know, showing images of people that look like me and saying, Oh, these people have been dealing with this medicine for thousands of years, not just the other day, not since the sixties or seventies. In fact, since the dawn of time, the first ever human beings in this current cycle that we know of were partaking in these types of substances. And it's, part and parcel of their traditions to this day the oldest cave paintings on planet earth that suggest plants and mushrooms played a big part in their societies because they put those were some of the first pictures that they ever drew it's like it inspired them to make pictures about it so that led me to really want to look into who are these groups and how did they use these technologies because i'm wondering if i don't know if you guys have heard of iboga which is a indigenous plant native to central and western Africa. But if you was to google it right now, the first thing that's probably going to come up on YouTube or you know Google is, you know, iboga for heroin addiction, iboga for alcohol recovery and like iboga is good for trauma and stuff like that. I would challenge you mm. to find in like the top 10 results it's not having something that's not suggesting that. But what I'm saying is when I first heard that was like, so hold on a minute, you know, in Gabon, in Uganda, in the Congo, for example, where this plant is native to, where it comes from who it was gifted to the gatekeepers of this plant and i'd rather hear what they've got to say about what and how and why they use it and when i went to find out how most groups indigenous groups utilize their plant technologies it's not for anxiety depression ptsd trauma you know alcohol addictions and stuff that we're talking about in the this renaissance what i discovered was that these groups who utilize these technologies especially the ones from the dawn of time till now they don't have anxiety they don't have depression they don't have ptsd they don't have to deal with alcohol recovery heroin addiction because i believe the lifestyle that it sets them up to live is like naturally preventative it's a preventative measure for them to do it and you know it was really clear on my research moving forward that all of these groups suggest that their plants or the fungi that they deal with was gifted to them so that they could communicate with their ancestors that's like the number one thing but I want people to also realize these are things that are just part of these people's day-to-day life also so they're not walking around like holier than thou and wearing white garbs every day and yo this is a part and part of their life where they are microdosing you know and it's just because they use it to go hunting they're not just doing it to have a good time and to chill on the beach like I've met some people here in Mexico <laughs> what they're doing you know like these guys it's part of their way of life so for them to go and make yeah. sure that they can eat food at the end of the day end of the week they need to be microdosing why because at lower dosages it high the senses. So you're going to see um. better, you're going to hear better you're going to be able to go and hunt better, basically. And then there is sacred ceremony and rituals that are parts of rites of passages that are part of, you know, becoming from childhood into adulthood, you know, young boys into men, young girls into women. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's part and parcel of their world. It's sacred, you know, ceremonial, but it's also day-to-day stuff, you know, just like, it's not that deep either. It's like what we need to do, it's how we do it. And I found, yeah, that like they're probably the best at, at sharing how they would go about it if we took the time out to listen to them.
0: And I guess moving back into how these these kind of substances and also just behaviours have kind of filtered into the West. I wanted to ask like, how do you feel like we can interact with these substances, these practices in a way that feels still respectful of the cultures in which they actually come from?
1: So for me, like, even before we're talking about psychedelics or anything like that, these sacred plants, are just like our relationship with the land, full stop. So I think that's where we start. I'm often invited to talk about, you know, mushrooms are from eight out of space and you know all that type of stuff. But I'm really about, just like those young children I shared with you earlier on, it's like, when was the last time you went to your local forest and just walked barefoot and just sat by a tree for a few hours? By yourself, you know, with no influence, no stimuli, just you and nature. You know, like that's where you start. And if you start there, nature communicates, man. So then when people ask me, what do you do? What should I do? I'm like, if you've done that, that would be the only thing that I'd really tell you to do in the nature. If you open yourself up to your organic technologies, put the phone down a second, put, you know, and, you know, feel, go back into your intuition, go back into your telepathic abilities that you have, you know, these thoughts that you have and learn how to process them. You will start making a relationship a form of a relationship where nature will communicate with you and will be your best teacher your best indicator your best guide where you wouldn't even want to listen to another human being no matter how wise they may sound or appear to look and stuff like that with that said you it's you know a path where you know if you are jumping on a plane, for example, and I'm going to fly over to the Amazon to go and meet with groups and indigenous groups to have, a, I don't know, an ayahuasca experience. I really do think that, you know, like they say in the rap industry, man, you need to check in. I don't just turn up at your house and knock on your front door. I've got to give you a heads up that, I'm, you know, I'm coming around and, yeah. you know, and if I am coming, I'm not I'm just going to say, Oh, yeah, I'm coming around, I'll be there at six o'clock. I've got to call you and say, yo, what are you doing today? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have plans? Yeah. Oh, I'm coming, is there anything you would like me to bring? These are the notions mm-hmm. of like checking in because what I've discovered is especially this Western mentality, which I've got, I'm from the West, I've got the mentality. is like, we think we can go everywhere and save it. Like, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna mm-hmm. get this. And then, us saving it is by, oh, I paid, I gave them money. You know, I paid money and that, that, that's not actually the currency that mother nature understands. And is it true fair exchange? You know, you uprooting. You know, I don't know ayahuasca vines that have taken you know, decades to grow and stuff. And then you know, three thousand, thirty thousand of us from the UK, another half a million from the states, or some, you know, flocking over there and you know, doing big business. You know, it's called psychedelic tourism at the moment. You know, that's one of the words Mm -hmm. that are floating around. For me, it's really like really learning to check in. So I start with you going to the forest and checking in with yourself checking in with the forest and the law of the land nature and then checking with the people of the land and hear what they've got to really say and most of them will tell you that you know we don't want your problems here <laughs> you know, like leave your mm. leave your leave your problems over there and then i would encourage that and i'd also say yeah because what that would also encourage us to do is respect and appreciate your own land
0: i think that that's a really interesting point though it's like there are ways that we romanticize the kind of process and without actually really understanding what, what's at the core of it. And so it's more about the act and the process and, like, documenting and going through those specific motions rather than the core of it, which is, like you say, checking in with the land, being in a more reciprocal relationship. Um, and we still seem to be treating it like it's something that we should just be benefiting from. I guess talking about the more positive side of this new kind of relationship with these kind of substances and the potential for them to react with and interact with mental health in like a positive way. I wanted to ask if you'd encountered much on that side of the coin and if you had seen anything that felt like promising news about how psychedelics can positively impact all of us
1: what is really clear with the initial research that's been done with psychedelics in the uk as well as united states and other places around the world is that they're just knocking all the other so-called medicines out the park with the results that they're getting with these trials so ptsd people familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder and um, that affects many people in different ways they've done a trial with soldiers who had served time come back from their time in the military and was challenged by ptsd because these Soldiers have seen death, you know murder, blood, you know there 's a lot of stuff, and then they actually get support, they get therapy there 's things that they get along the lines of that, and what they discovered was it's still soldiers where they had high suicide, you know there was a lot of that negative stuff after returning back from the military they done some trials with these soldiers with mdma they 've also done it with psilocybin, but the MDMA trials were done first that I came across and For all the soldiers that went through this MDMA trial who had PTSD, chronic, not even just like chronic PTSD, 100% of the soldiers benefited from utilizing this process of going through the MDMA experience, which was partaking in MDMA as well as getting some therapeutic support alongside of that. 100% of the soldiers benefited. 68% it totally removed their PTSD totally removed at least after three experiences with this and then the remaining thirty two percent it significantly reduced their PTSD and they didn't need to take, you know, the medication as often or frequently as they did and they felt that they was in a better space and could eventually work their way off of it. So I'm saying that to say that that knocks any and everything that's presented for ptsd out of the park and they've been doing this stuff with depression anxiety and you know all of the other ones on the spectrum so to speak of you know of that realm of mental health and every time they do the trials it comes back really positive man it's like just as i said it's just ridiculous so i'll say that to say that's really cool and amazing research that's being done but i knew at the time that as and when that becomes legit legitimize it becomes part of the system itself you know it gets integrated into the system where it has in other parts of the world where it's become legal and decriminalized what you find is that people still don't get access because they're priced out you know these things will be costing tens of thousands of pounds for you to go and have these experiences in those types of settings and get the right support a lot of the people that i deal with who have ptsd depression anxiety and so forth are not going to have that kind of budget and not going to be able to get access some of these young people that I mentioned earlier on that I took to the forest some of them have seen people got shot they've seen people being stabbed they've had they've had their friends die in their arms and they don't have any support they didn't sign up for this this is just like I've just been dropped in this community and this is what I've grown up in and around and you know although my parents might have tried to give me the best options and alternatives as we know there's influence you know there's allow young people to get make the decisions that they make with that said, I was like, well, there's a lot of young people walking around with, you know, depression, anxiety, PTSD, like chronic, and they actually don't even know it because they've not been diagnosed with it. To them, it's normal to be walking around the way they are. And then when you look at the way they communicate and the way they're handling stuff, it's like all the signs of, you know, the the trait signs of PTSD. So that's one reason why I stand up and speak and, you know, just bring awareness to all of that, just to make sure that with all this great stuff that's happening with the research, all the real people who really need access to this, who are suffering from these challenges, get the support.
0: What's next on your own personal journey with mushrooms, with growing, with just sharing that knowledge with the
1: world? Yeah, I'm just gonna keep spreading the spores. That's all I know how to do now. I do that in different ways through obviously talks and workshop presentation type stuff. But um, what I think is really important is making sure that we don't miss a trick and that's making sure that the up and coming generation and the one leading up coming behind them are privy to this stuff. So they they don't need to wait till they're in their 30s to start talking about this. So it was really important for me to get this stuff into schools, even to the point where we've got, I'm working with an educational body and a school in North London where we have just completed writing. Well, I wrote it, let me, but, give myself my flowers. I wrote the accreditation, but in collaboration with um, the school and this educational body, we've been able to educate young people in mushroom cultivation, not only just so that they're educated, but they can actually get an accreditation, a qualification that allows mm-hmm. them to be proud um, mushroom cultivators and we've just had the first students come through so we're getting mushroom cultivation in schools and trying to get like digital content and stuff that's just relevant to young people to be able to have conversations about mushrooms because they know it they know about yeah. plants and zombies the games and there's mushrooms in there and stuff and there's just ways of engaging young people about this and the more we can create or oh, I can work in collaboration with others to get content you know to inspire the next generation that's what that's what's moving me at the moment
0: that's incredible we know about Henry VIII and all his wives but we don't know about mushrooms we don't know about taxes maybe the second one is just me Darren thank you so much for talking to me that was really interesting
1: thank you for the invitation
0: this Super Self podcast series is part of Selfridge's exploration into innovative well-being and self-care practices that aim to make us feel good both inside and out Tune in each week for more thought-provoking discussions and practical tips and head to Selfages.com for lots more ways to discover your super self with enriching stories, uplifting playlists, life-enhancing events and mood-boosting experiences. This is a Radio Wolfgang production and features Darren Springer. The producers were Ivor Manley and Cass Denton. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino.